In the woods of Michigan, there are things that go bump in the night. One story states feral children roam the woods, terrifying anyone who come in contact with them. Another story is of a strange ghost light that locals have seen since the 1960s. You are listening to the Mysterious Brews podcast, and tonight we bring you the cases of the Melonheads and the Paulding Light. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. And as you can tell, something is awry. Unfortunately, Coach can't be with us tonight. He has been quarantined for 14 consecutive days, and we are doing quarantine with the kids. Tonight you get to hear from my son, Raylan. And he will be filling in for the coach, and hopefully within two weeks he'll be back with us, and we'll be back to normal. No major reviews to report, but we have had a lot of people reach out to us on our Facebook page. We have 384 likes and 402 followers. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, you can find us at Mysterious Brews on Facebook. Instagram, and the Twitter. So with that said, we will dive into the case, and that is the Melonheads of Michigan. We will also touch on the other origin stories of the Melonheads throughout the country, but since this is basically a Michigan-based episode, we're going to start with them. All right, so let's dive straight into the backstory of the Melonheads of Michigan. They're said to reside around Felt Mansion and are reportedly seen in the southern forested areas of Ottawa County. According to one story, they're just children with hydrocephalus who lived at the Junction and State Asylum near Felt Mansion. After enduring physical and emotional abuse, they became feral and were released into the forests around the asylum. Another story says that they were originally lived inside the mansion but went to live in the surrounding forest instead. Which makes no sense because... Why would anyone in their right mind want to live in the forest with zero shelter and not the nice mansion right next to them? Anyways, some stories say that the children plotted to escape the asylum and kill the doctor that abused them. Rumors around that area talk about a couple of teenagers that broke into the mansion and claimed to see the shadow of the doctor's murder. There was even a 2011 movie simply titled The Melonheads. Now, the Felt Mansion, the government would say, is part of the Dunes Correctional Facility. It was a low-security prison that which that was shut down. This is where the insane asylum, I think, came to fruition. The Allegheny County Historical Society has claimed that the asylum never existed. It's just part of the lore. But maybe it did exist. Or maybe it was just a wing of the prison back in those early days. Well, what if they're just aliens and the men in black is being like, no, no, that that insane asylum didn't exist, no. Look into this little silver thing. (laughs) All right, so as 
Raylan said, this is a mixture of things that's going on. There is a medical condition that would cause a bulbous head, which is called hydrocephalus. And it's basically water on the brain or more specifically excess cerebrospinal fluid on the head. One story states that the melon head still to this day live in the woods where they have become even more wild and more mutated. Another origin story for the Michigan side of this tale is, and this came from a Michigan resident on michigansotherside.com, says this legend has made its way to my neck of the woods as well. A little different, though, in southwest Michigan, the melon heads are said to be located behind the Cook nuclear plant in Bridgman. There are two different stories of how they got to be there. The first story says there was an insane asylum in the woods before the power plant was built, and there was a fire that burned the asylum to the ground, and the melon heads escaped and have been living in the wild ever since. The other story says... There was a group of people who lived behind the plant in the woods. After exposure to the radiation, they began to have swelling of the brain, and out of embarrassment and shame, they stayed in the woods to be left alone by the public to live their lives. The nuclear plant and all surrounding property have been closed off to the public since the 9-11 attacks, but you used to be able to drive back into the woods and explore. It was a pastime for teenagers to scare the bejesus out of themselves and their dates. I have been told that there that the whole area back there is like a maze unless you know the area well, it is very easy to get lost in. I suppose that just adds to the scare factor. So I would say the melon heads from my area are just urban legend, but it always makes for entertaining conversation, especially when talking with those who have been there and claim to have seen one. Another account that's also on michigansotherside.com states, I have friends who have seen the melon heads in the woods a few times. Do I believe them? Yes and no. They say if you flick your car headlights, you're more prone to see something, but I'm too afraid to try. I've heard insane ghost stories about the Felt Mansion, though. People seeing kids playing at the top of the stairs, then jumping off the balcony of the house. There was also a story about teens who were going to vandalize the Felt Mansion before the restoration began in 2000. It was in the middle of the night, and a man in a horse-drawn carriage pulled up and asked them if they needed a ride. They freaked out and ran away. Well, what do you say about that, yeah, boss man? Just creepers. Yeah, it is a little creepers. All right, another account or encounter is last year, me and some friends of mine at Hope College decided we wanted to go to the Allegheny County Woods in Hamilton, in search of the melon heads. On our first night there, we went back on a path for about a mile and came to an opening where there seemed to be a foundation of a building still there, but the building was gone. On the walk back to the opening, there was a sign hanging over the path, but it was too faded to make out the wording. On the first night, we did not experience anything too out of the ordinary that we didn't think we couldn't explain by animals or other sorts. We went back the next night, and it was raining, mixed with some lightning. Me and two other guys were leading the group down the path, and about a half a mile into our walk, there was a lightning flash, and all three of us saw the same exact figure of a human about four and a half feet tall, 
with an abnormally large head standing in the middle of the clearing that we had gone to the night before. We three kind of slowed down for a minute, and the next thing we knew, we heard a huge crash in the woods to the left of us. We immediately turned and ran it back to our cars. All right, so now we jump into the Melonheads of Ohio. They are said to reside around Kirtland. They were orphans under the watch of Dr. Crow, or his nickname, Dr. Melonhead. It was said that Dr. Crow performed unusual experiments on these children, making them grow huge hairless heads and deformed bodies. Other stories state that the orphans had hydrocephalus and the doctor pumped their heads with even more fluids. Both stories end up with the children murdering Dr. Crow and burning down the orphanage. They escape to the forests and now, where they now allegedly feed on babies, which is pretty weird. Most eyewitness accounts have happened around Wisner Road in Kirtland and Chardon Township. Melonheads have been popularized on online with a website named Dead Ohio, where people share their own stories and theories about what happened to them. A movie about the Ohio Melonheads was released in 2010 called The Legend of the Melonheads. Another popular tale that is of a group of teenagers who were traveling through prime Melonhead territory in Wycliffe, Ohio in 1964. They passed by one of the bizarre creatures standing by the side of the road and just staring at them. When they slowed down the car to get a better look at the creature, it scurried off into the wilderness and the teenagers decided to give chase. They made their way to an old-fashioned house with an elderly couple sitting on the porch. Several melon heads were milling about them in a surreal scene that none of the teens could quite believe. One of the teens asked the man what, what was going on. He basically said that he was a nuclear scientist during World War II and that the radiation he had been constantly exposed to led to some deformities in their children. He claimed that the government had paid him to keep it quiet about it and relocated him there to a remote area along with his wife and his mutated children, where they could be kept away from normal society. The man made them promise not to tell the location of the house and sent them on their way. Of course, being tans, they supposedly immediately told all their friends about how they had run into the legendary Melonheads. A group of them went out to find them. As they drove along the lonely road towards the house, they then apparently were stopped by a large group of police officers, which was surprising since they were in the middle of nowhere. The cops asked asked what they were doing, and, so, and when the subject of Melonheads came up, the police adamantly is, insisted that it was just an urban legend, and they best head back. When the teens refused, they were allegedly taken to the police station. Their parents had to come pick them up. Teens would later claim that they had been doing nothing wrong, and they had just been driving, minding their own business, making them a suspect to a clear cover-up. Well, that just adds to the fact that these might be aliens and the men in black sent some cops to say, uh, no, that didn't happen. I, you didn't see anything. It's a cover-up, man. It's a cover-up. It's the government. Government trying to hide stuff from us. Now we get into a little bit of a sidebar with the origin of Dr. Crow. One of the stories states that 
he would was not as mad as Raylan's story points out. The other version basically is very different and said and says instead of him being a mad scientist inflicting crazy abuse on orphans, he was actually a very gentle and loving man seeking to only help children suffering from hydrocephalus. Maybe because of his personal history, maybe out of the goodness of his heart, but he took in dozens of orphaned, abandoned, and unwanted children, giving them a safe and secure place to call home. The quote Melonheads, as his ignorant neighbors called them, loved the good doctor. He was like a father who gave them unconditional love and acceptance. In his secluded hideaway on Wisner Road, Dr. Crow cared for those children, shielding them from the cruelty of the outside world. All was well until Dr. Crow suddenly died of natural causes. Now upset and frightened with no one to care for them, no one to feed or clothe them, the Melonheads became enraged. They set fire to the house, burned Dr. Crow's body, and then fled into the woods. They took their anger out on anyone who crossed their paths. The locals knew to stay far away from the old Crow property, but other curiosity seekers always went looking for trouble. As the years passed, the Melonheads grew. The ones who survived basically reproduced, interbreeding, and creating even more deformed offspring. The insanity was passed also from generation to generation. The Melonheads guarded their territory from outsiders. They were blamed for numerous attacks and some kidnappings. Some accounts say that they stole livestock, pets, and even children using all of them as a food source. And when times got lean, cannibalism was not out of the question. So now we get into some other encounters from the Ohio version. Take it away, young son. Well, another person literally just states, it didn't look like anything I had heard in the stories. He looked about the same height as me, 5'7", wearing brown pants and a very ripped up. And where the seams would be, it was held together by what looked like a corn husk. It wore a white t-shirt with brown and red stains all over it. I hope that that wasn't blood. It was ketchup. Yeah, totally ketchup. Its head was very light brown tint. It had two holes in the side of its heads, which I think were ears. Its head was swollen and its eyes were very big. Just as we turned the curve, it jumped into the woods. And that's my story of the Melonheads. Uh, we did actually forget a Michigan story, and we really wanted to include this one. And it is, this one's more believable than some of the other ones that we've went on. But it says that, and this lady's name is Kelly Top Bedrosian, claims that she was exploring the grounds of the then-abandoned Felt Mansion with her friends one night when she saw a man in the distance. He had an unusually large head, but she wasn't scared. Then he started walking towards them. She states, not knowing who this man could be, my friend yelled hello to try and be friendly. But all we got was a loud grunt, and the man continued to walk towards us, but now at a faster pace. At this point, the same idea hit all of us, 
and probably some poopy on the cotton. But it was, we started running, sprinting towards our car. We scrambled in, peeled out of the parking lot at high speed, not slowing down until we were several, several miles from the mansion. Yeah, I'd have crapped my pants. I would have screamed. Like a banshee. Yeah, Mountainheads would have been like, oh, banshee's here. Nope. Another account from a person called JB says, It was an early autumn night around 10 p.m. when I heard my dog bark and I ran outside to see what was happening. When I got outside to see what what all the commotion was, I just found my dog lying there bleeding. Looked towards the woods and saw what I believed to be a small figure with pale skin on a large head. When the creature saw me, it ran into the woods. Next morning, followed the tracks, but they stopped near a creek. And that's all it says. I wonder if the dog was okay. Because, you know, that's what Coach will be wondering. Is the dog okay? I'm wondering... Maybe that melon head had rabies, and then the dog contracted rabies, and they had to put it down. Wait, and it turned into Cujo? It, yeah, it turned into Cujo. Okay, so that's the better stories that we found for Ohio. So now we'll jump to the melon heads of Connecticut. And the Connecticut version has three, what we will say, origin stories. The first one states that a mental asylum caught fire and burned to the ground in the fall of 1960. And a good number, is all it says, of inmate bodies were not recovered or identified, and these escaped inmates escaped to the woods. Because they didn't want to go back to an asylum, they settled out in the rural woods of southwestern Connecticut. Like you stated, interbreeding set in, and since there was only 10 or 20 of them, Just like in the Ohio ones, the interbreeding led to more and more deformities and more and more psychosis. Now, the second origin story comes from colonial America. And this one is about a family in either Shelton or Trumbull. They were banished after accusations of witchcraft and had to flee to the woods. As with the first story... The appearances due to inbreeding and cannibalism. More psychosis, more deformities, and the melon heads are now said to prey on humans that wander into their territory. Yeah, and according to this, we can blame the Salem witch trials on the beginnings of the melon heads. I never saw that. That's cool. Yeah. What happens when you research? Shut up, It's just like I'm sitting here with Coach. The third origin story is what we touched on earlier, and it's hydrocephalus. And this is going to result in some slower mental capacity along with their physical deformity would make them an eyesore. And then people who saw them in town or outside of town in the woods would have probably been alarmed told their friends about it, and that's more than likely the way that the melon heads started. Now, one thing that is, I guess, specific to the Connecticut part of it is this most stories occur on Velvet Lane in Trumbull. Otherwise known as Dracula Drive. Now, 
if they are referring to Dracula Drive, there are a ton of other roads that have been known to be Dracula Drive. We won't get into that, but if you are interested in that, it's on the Melonheads wiki page. But some of the back road streets in Monroe and Downs Road in Hamden have been the center of some Melonhead stories. Basically, all of these roads that they tell about are lonely, lonely stretches of woods, isolated, no cell service, so it's a little spooky. These melon heads are described as about three foot tall. They are distorted features such as a short torso, large head, large eyes, long skinny arms. Most believe they're cannibalistic and may have power to communicate with each other telepathically. There are many stories of hikers or backpackers that have disappeared while alone in areas rumored to be home to the melon heads. Just want to point something out. They have a small torso. Torso. All right. So this story comes from the 1980s when a group of girls named Megan, Sue, Kim, Debbie, Jen, and Karen were out on a ride one Friday night. The group decided to take a ride down Dracula Drive for for kicks. Can't talk. Knowing full well that all the dark folklore of the... I can't say anything. That's what you get for making fun Forklore. of me. Shit ass. Lard Farquard. Lord, Lord Farquard. Just start over. Alright. This account comes from somewhere in the 1980s, where a group of girls named Megan, Sue, Kim, Debbie, Jen, and Karen were out one night on a drive group decided to take a drive down Dracula Drive for no reason. Knowing most of the folklore, but they tried to scare each other just because. They got out of their car, tried to explore, and uh, that didn't turn out well. Well, as they walked down the road, giggling and trying to scare each other with stories... They allegedly heard the door of their car open, after which it started up and actually came driving towards them. The mysterious thief was obscured by the dark and blinding headlights, and the car sped towards them pretty fast, forcing them to jump off into the ditch, basically. And when they looked around, they would finally see the car thieves as they were, Child-sized, humanoids dressed in ragged clothes with humongous heads and white eyes that glowed with an orange light. The creatures could be heard giggling maniacally as the car sped past off into the night, never to be seen again. Now, I just want to say something. I'm pretty sure Debbie died, because that was their, I don't know, but that was a car. That was Debbie's car. It was a Ford Granada. Pretty sure those are beautiful, and anyone who says otherwise... They haven't seen a Ford Granada. Anyways, my parents, including most parents out there, would have killed their child if all of a sudden they just lost their pimp daddy car. Not just a pimp daddy car. Any car. If you come home and try to tell me that you lost a vehicle because of melon heads, 
you're right. You would die. Especially a pimp daddy. So that is our take on the melon heads. And to be honest with you, there are some urban legends in there, but I think they're just my two cents worth is it probably was a couple of kids that had hydrocephalus back in the 60s and people just didn't know how to act and started making fun of them. And maybe this kid grew up kind of like the elephant man and was just disfigured and tried to have a normal life. But again, we'll get more into it at the end when we get to our theories. So now let's jump into our second part of this episode and that is the Paulding Lot. All right. So this is a really, really weird thing. It's just a light in the sky. Nobody knows how it's there. The and it's basically right on top of the horizon. It's not really high in the sky. It's about treetop level, I believe. And this is just outside of Paulding, Michigan. The first recorded sighting of the Paulding Light was in 1966 when a group of teenagers just saw it and reported it to the Sarah. And it's also known as the Dog Meadow Lights or the Ghost Light. Since then, a number of individuals have reported seeing that mysterious light, which is said to appear nearly every night at the same spot. And it's just above a vast line of trees and power lines in the rural area called Robin's Pond Road. It slowly flickers on like a candle, burning brighter and hovering like a fireball among the stars for several seconds. It's been reported to be a range of colors, anything from bright white to a reddish orange and even green. I didn't find several seconds. I found it stayed there all night. Well, I've seen that too, and it was on an episode of a sci-fi channel program that we'll get into in a second. But yes, this was just given the direction of where it was at and the colors that I saw. Ah. All right. So... Although stories to the light may vary, most popular legends involve the death of a railroad brakeman. The legend states that the valley once contained railroad tracks and the light is the lantern of the brakeman who was killed while attempting to stop an oncoming train from colliding with railway cars stopped on the tracks. Another story claims that the light is a ghost of a slain mail carrier while another says that the ghost of an Indian dancing on the power lines is that. Another theory is that it's a lantern from a railroad worker who was tragically killed trying to cross the railroad tracks. He supposedly and reportedly swings the lantern and flashes the light to warn visitors of an impending train. And there's some variations to this, Another variation is that the man was killed on the train tracks as he searched for his lost son at the in night at the night in the night. His light appears as a ghost as his ghost continues searching for his forever lost child. And then another story says that a railroad switchman was holding the light a lantern when he was crushed to death between two cars while trying to signal the engineer. 
Other theories say that an engineer was murdered along the railroad grade that runs parallel to the road that where the light appears. And some people have even claimed to have seen the for real Grim Reaper floating across the road near the light. All right, so the town of Paulding actually has capitalized on people's curiosity of the Paulding lot, and they have a gift shop and a little gas station where you can ask about how to get to the area to see the Paulding lot as well as buy souvenirs. But now we get into the sci-fi series, Factor Fate, Paranormal Fight. And this was Season 1, Episode 5 in 2010. They investigated the Paulding Light. The investigators were depicted trying several experiments in an unsuccessful attempt to recreate the light, including using car headlights from the north-south section of US-45 and a flyover by... Flyover by? A flyby. Well, it was a flyover by a Cessna with a spotlight. Ah, uh, well, yes. A flyover by an a- airplane with a spotlight, according to sci-fi.com. After conducting the EVP session, they finally decide that the phenomenon is unexplainable. To see the mysterious orb, one must follow the gravel road about a half a mile, or they'll run into a barricaded dead end. At the foot of the forest lies... A sign that begins, this is the location of the famous Paulding light can be observed. And it's got a little depiction of Casper the Friendly Ghost at the bottom. And we'll put a picture of that little plaque on our social media. So not so fast there, Scooby-Doo. In the same year that the Sci-Fi Channel did their investigation, Michigan Technological University students took on the Paulding light as a class project. The students who were members of the Society of Photo-Optical Instrumentation Engineers, or SPI, set out to the famous area with a telescope. What they saw through the lens was a lot less exciting than a ghost carrying a lantern. They go on to say that they had done some historical checking and there was never any train tracks near that area. But upon them looking at the light through their large telescope, they were able to see car headlights shining down the road of US-45. Due to the position of the road, the car headlights are being refracted from a partially blocked line of sight. Professor Mike Rogerman explained the group's findings saying I can't say there is no ghost there for sure, but I can say everything we saw perfectly is explainable. Now, this did not sit too well with the true believers. And although the students were able to provide a scientific explanation, the avid fans of the light and the true, true believers of the supernatural history of the light would dismiss their the scientists' findings And the main person that, if you are interested in this, is Jeremy Boz. 
And he responded to their claims by saying, we've been told we haven't seen the real Paulding light. It's not been out here for three or four years. And he says that I've been out here 15 times, hours at a time, in the heat, in the cold, in the rain. It's always the same. But people will always want to believe a mystery other than the scientific explanation. He even goes on to state that we were there one Monday when a man saw the headlight on our computer from the telescope and he refused to believe it. According to the research group, sometimes heat rises off the pavement and causes a distortion in the light, making it appear larger or smaller from a distance. The movement of the light is due to an optical illusion caused when the car moves up and down the hill. The students also offer that the variety of colored lights seen in the prob- scene is probably due to cop cars pulling people over. Despite these findings, people still visit Paulding, Michigan, hoping to get a glimpse of the light, or even a ghost. It's fun for the whole family to park on the side of the road and anticipate the light's arrival. And whether the lights are from a car or whether they are an unrestful spirit, the light brings people together in a positive way and sparks the imagination and daydreamers everywhere. So we will leave you with this. If you have gone out to Paulding, Michigan and seen the light, and you believe it's not headlights in the distance, then that's okay. And if you do believe that it's headlights in the distance, that's okay too. So now we're going to get into our theories. And since we have our guest of honor, Mr. Raylan, he will go first. Oh, yes. Anyways, with the melon heads, like you said, I'm pretty sure they're just People with hydrocephalus that are kind of scared of the fact that people don't, they make fun of them. So they run away, seem like creatures, blah, blah, blah. Well, I think it also, on that tangent, is that happened probably with the first story. And then it kind of grew into that urban legend of things like that. And And it probably was a young child that had hydrocephalus and... He was made fun of, and then more and more stories. He eats children. He eats cats. My cat just, you know that, and then it just grew from there. Now, whether or not it now it may be true that there was a Doctor Crow, but supposedly in our research, any way that you could figure out how to spell crow, they've looked into it and they can't find anyone like that. So, who's to say? Now with the Paulding light. From my very extensive research, I found that it stays on all night. Yeah, not just a couple of seconds. Which means, how is that headlights? See, there's a YouTube video, and all you have to do is Google uh, or search on YouTube, Paulding Light Debunked. It's about four minutes and some change. And it actually has the uh, Jeremy Boz showing how he set up his experiment. And they have a huge telescope. And he's showing that it's cars far, 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 far away. He said something like seven or eight miles, I believe, is how far they're looking. Now, 
I don't know if in the episode of Fact or Fake, if they didn't go far enough on US-45, and that's why their experiment didn't work. But at the same time, they tried to recreate it with a spotlight on a plane, and they were just below 500 feet, and it wasn't the same. And the light wasn't out then, and it was still pretty dark. And so I guess that's the thing. I I think that's where Jeremy's getting some of his pushback as people are saying, look, that's not what you're seeing is not what the real light is. So on the Fact or Fact episode, I'm just going to hop on this train real quick. They went pretty far, even past the point of where the police had blocked off the highway. And... They went back to the point where they most likely thought Bill could see it, turned off their headlights, and the pausing light was still there. So, Yeah, and it doesn't move. It doesn't appear to move in that episode. And in some other YouTube videos, it doesn't appear to move a whole lot either. So it's not like you could say it was headlights moving just a little bit. But, again, we personally have not been to Paulding, Michigan, so we can't say. And... Who is there? I don't see the possibility of a infinite line of cars all night running through, or the possibility that someone every night goes out, there, goes and out there, turns on their headlights, and sleeps in that exact spot, that exact space, even when it's winter time and the heat isn't rising up, up from the pavement, so the distortion isn't whatever. I just don't. I don't, I do not think somebody just parked there every night. Exact spot. Like, exact. It doesn't move at all during, like, during the nights. Exact spot. Just, yeah, I'm gonna park here, turn on my headlights randomly, and go to sleep. Alright, so those are our opinions and our theories on both of those. Our recommendations, I will start us off because I've just pulled this on him. But I recommend that you do your own research with anything. Reach out there, Google it, and see what you can find. And if you are from Michigan and you have had a experience with either the Melonheads or with the Paulding Lot, please contact us on social media and let us know. And... We are hoping to go back and start revisiting some cases that we've had some some comments on some of our cases. So we are going to probably have that in the works as well. Before Raylan gets into his recommendation, one last thing I wanted to say was, if you're not a Patreon patron, please look into it. We are looking at upgrading all three tiers. We are looking at giving a twenty, at least a minimum of 24-hour early access to our episodes for our Patreon patrons, and hopefully there's going to be some merchandise coming down the pipe pretty soon, maybe some t-shirts, a koozie, something. But now, Raylan, go ahead with your recommendation. No, I don't have many recommendations as YouTube channels. I will say, watch the episode, Fact or Fact. Watch 
Watch that one dude's debunked video. Other than that, there's a couple websites. Mysterious Universe. They did a pretty good job with Melonheads and the Polyglot. Now, same goes for Michigan's other side. Go check those two out, and like Arlo said, cons- please consider becoming a, a patron on Patreon. And uh, without further ado, deuces. I wanted to say it. <laughs> Go ahead, you can say it. Deuces. God dang, boy.